look tonight at challenges of contemporary pluralism of response. How do we uh, deal with the uh, pluralism that exists in our country? And I'm really looking tonight at cherished pluralism, that pluralism of philosophy, uh, of uh, religious belief and practice, the idea that all religions are equal, that as long as you have faith, that's really what matters, or as long as you pray, or as long as you believe in a God, uh, that's the only thing that, that really matters. How, how do we deal with that? Well, tonight we're going to look at the nation of Israel. And have as an introduction, the Bible addresses the challenges of contemporary pluralism. You might not think of Israel as being very contemporary, or looking at what the Bible talks about as having taken place 2,000 years before uh, the birth of Christ is contemporary. But I want us to look at the way in which Israel dealt with a pluralistic society. In the book of Deuteronomy, we have three addresses by Moses to prepare people for uh, living in the land of Canaan. The book of Deuteronomy really is three sermons. And the three sermons are given to prepare Israel for entering the land of Canaan. The theme of the address is to stay true to God. For 40 years, the Israelites had lived a very sheltered life. Can't live much more sheltered life than wandering around in the wilderness. Uh, they didn't encounter other peoples. They dwelt separately. They were camping out as a group of people. They were one big community with the tabernacle at the very center of their habitats. Uh, they were isolated. Secondly, they had been very little exposure to other religions or practices. And despite the fact that there was little exposure to other religions, there were occasions when they had gone after other gods. Uh, that isolation didn't guarantee that they were going to be a righteous and religious people. Uh, we all know about the golden calf that Aaron made. And he was the high priest. You know, that wasn't some foreign person that snuck into the camp and said, you know, uh, I'm going to incite uh, unbelief in this group and I'm going to create the golden calf. It was the high priest. It was the guardian of religious truth for the nation of Israel that led them down that path. Uh, isolationism in and of itself is absolutely no guarantee for truth. Um, Martin Luther learned that in a monastery. As he entered the priesthood and lived in a monastery trying to get away from the evil and the sin of this world. And he tried to beat it out of himself with a flagellant. And it was in the study of the book of Romans in which he read, The just shall live by faith, that got Martin Luther up and out of the monastery and into the world because he realized that there is no place on this earth you can go. There is no isolation that you can experience that is going to guarantee religious purity or adherence to truth. So there's got to be a better way. And Israel needs to address it and we need to address it. B. Now things are going to be different. They were headed into a land where no one worshipped the true and living God. They were in a minority to be sure. In the land of Canaan, there was nobody that worshipped and served the living and true God. There were a host of other religious beliefs and practices out there to be 
encountered and witnessed. The worship of Molech, the worship of Balaam. And you can go through all those uh, religions that I'm not going to look at tonight. But they were just surrounded by a host of other religious practices, including sacrificing their children on an altar, you name it. Three, immorality was commonplace. Four, the cities were large and corrupt. Five, the people were intelligent, cultured, but ungodly. And six, the citizenry was large and handsome and beautiful. There was much to allure the young Israelite. As you grew up as an Israelite in the land of Canaan, you had a paltry comparison. Uh, They didn't have the dwellings. They didn't have the riches. They didn't have the prestige. They didn't have the status that the nations round about them possessed. They were a true minority with all its weaknesses. C. There was a world of opportunity facing the young Israelite, but there was also a world of temptation with its potential harm that they must face. How were they to deal with it? Were the challenges of Moses' day less formidable than the challenges today? Are the influences of heathen and godly neighbors removed from us? Does the temptation to marry outside of the faith no longer exist? Are our young people free from exposure to other religious beliefs and practices? Is immorality no longer a problem in our society? As our young people head out into the workplace or college or school, it is, is there not a world of opportunity facing them as well as a world of temptation while it's potential harm? Uh, I think we can all see the danger. The question is, well, what is the solution? What, what is the preserving influence that needs to take place? Transitional statement. We live in a far more pluralistic society today than the nation of Israel ever did. Theme, though society is pluralistic, the home is not to be philosophically pluralistic in its religion or worship. I'll unpack that for you in just a few moments. First, the Word of God is opposed to philosophical pluralism. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4 says, gives us the most condensed theology of Scripture. Deuteronomy 6, 4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. It's known as the Shema, which uh, is Hebrew for uh, to hear. So, hear, O Israel, Shema, still regularly recited in the synagogue to this day. The Lord our God is one. The Shema teaches two very basic truths that must be communicated to our children in a pluralistic society. It was to be understood that Jehovah was to be the God of the Israelites. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God. Israel was not to worship a host of gods. Israel was not to be pluralistic in nature. Israel was not to worship any god other than Jehovah. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. It was to be understood that Jehovah alone is God. Number one, the Israelites would encounter many religions and many faiths. But there was only one living and true God, and is that God which Israel serves. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. There is but one Jehovah. There is but one God. Two, all religions do not worship the same God. The various expressions of faith are not just different ways of expressing faith in the same God. I cannot, exp- I cannot drive that home enough. That there is the living and true God and there are false gods. 
And we live in a society that doesn't want to hear that. And it's politically incorrect to say that. But that's the way it is. We worship the living and true God. And every other God is a false God. A. The character, attributes, and nature of God are quite different in other religions. B. The concept of a trinity and the person of Jesus Christ is unique to Christianity. You see, you can't say, well, it's just important that you believe in God. Or a higher being. Or a greater power. The God of Islam, Allah, is not the God of the Bible. Allah is not a triune God. He is not Jehovah. He is a false God. So it doesn't matter. So it's it's inappropriate to say, well, you know, the, the Islamic faith, at least they believe in a God. Well, they don't believe in the living and true God. They don't worship God as he is. So we need to drive home the aspect that only the God of Christianity is the living and true God. All their gods are false gods. The concept of the Trinity in the person of Jesus Christ is indeed unique to Christianity. Now, other religions, some of them, not all of them, certainly not Buddhism, but some religions, including Islam, will have a special place for Jesus Christ. He's not considered a second member of the Trinity. He's not considered the Son of God, but he's a great prophet. And he should be listened to. And he's a great teacher. But he's not the second person of the Trinity. Uh, Mormons don't believe that Jesus is the second member of the Trinity. It's unique to Christianity. Everything else is false. We have to hold on to that basic premise. We can't let it go. It's very popular today in theological circles to say there's only one way to heaven. That's through Jesus Christ. But there are many ways to Christ. And in a lot of theological circles, as long as there is, quote unquote, a Christ figure, meaning that there is someone that you have to put your faith in. And so they may not know it's Jesus, but God knows it's Jesus and God accepts that. Well, he doesn't. There is no other name given among men whereby you must be saved. Uh, it requires personal faith in Jesus Christ, the true Jesus, the God man. And it can't be anything other or less. Three, different religious practices are not merely neutral means of enjoying different types of religious experiences. We need to understand that. It's popular. Uh, and, you know, I don't, I don't really jump on other churches in the community. I don't enjoy that. But, you know, you need to realize that a Tay's service is, is not acceptable. We're not syncretistic. We don't bring elements from other religious practices and try to instill something that's new or neat or novel. 
We're not looking for novelty. We're not looking for a new experience. We're not trying to bring a freshness to our faith. We're trying to bring truth. And so, how we worship is important. The concept of salvation is quite different in other religions than it is in Christianity. We need to preserve that truth. And that one is not saved apart from believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. One is not to sample different religions the way one would sample different foods at a smorgasbord. Here, cherished pluralism comes into conflict with core values of Christianity. Uh, So, Christianity is uniquely separate. And yes, we hold Christianity to be of greater importance, greater value, greater benefit than all other religions. And George Bush got into incredible trouble when he referred to other nations as being evil when he was talking about their religious beliefs. But, you know, it's not politically correct. But it's true. It's true. And we have to hold on to that. See. It was to be understood that Jehovah was to be worshipped in all the succeeding generations. Now, this is the commandment, the statutes and the judgments which the Lord your God has commanded me to teach you, that you might do them in the land where you're going over to possess it, so that you and your son and your grandson might fear the Lord your God. The purpose was that this faith would be handed down from generation to generation to generation. Number one, the Israelite child was not to be presented with a plethora of gods and religious teaching and encouraged to make his own decision. It wasn't that you need to teach them about Balaam and you need to teach them about Molech and you need to expose them to child sacrifice. And after they've been exposed, then encourage them to follow their own direction, follow their own path, go their own way, make their own decisions. Two, rather, the Israelite child was to be brought up in such a way as to embrace Jehovah as his or her God. Joshua twenty four fifteen, If it seem evil unto you to serve the Lord, choose you this day whom you will serve. The words of Joshua. Whether the gods which her fathers served that were on the other side of the flood, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. And then this great statement by Joshua, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. But notice Joshua made a decision not just for himself, but for his household. He made a decision for his children. He said, they will serve our God. That's the mindset we need to have. Again, in a pluralistic society, that is offensive. The idea that you would make a choice for your child as to what your child should believe. But that's our duty. That's our responsibility. We are to pass on our faith to our children. They are to believe what we believe. And we should make every conscious effort to bring that to pass. That our religious faith is passed on to our children. Three, it is the responsibility of the parents to bring up their children to serve the living and true God. Other gods were to be put away and God alone was to be served. Joshua 2.14 now, therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and truth. Put away the gods 
which your father served on the other side of the flood and in Egypt, and serve the Lord. A conscious choice had to be made as to how parents were going to rear their children. Choose you this day whom you will serve. You see, we need to make that choice. As parents, who is our family going to serve? Serving the Lord would not just happen. It was a conscious choice and effort that had to be put forth. We just don't fall into faith. We pass on the faith to ensuing generations. See, the choice would make a difference between the Israelites and those who lived round about them. And if it seem evil unto you to serve the Lord, choose you this day whom you will serve, and whether the gods which your fathers served that were on the other side of the flood, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. The Israelites chose to have their family serve the living and true God. And the people answered and said, God forbid that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. God forbid that we would forsake the Lord to serve other gods. I want, to be, I want to be immensely practical tonight and also immensely frank. I think you know, I don't think I'm very legalistic at all. I don't think I have a lot of rules of do's and don'ts that go beyond the scriptures. But I do have a concern. I do have a concern. And I, I think sometimes the wrong impression is given. I, I was brought up at, in a very legalistic home, in a very legalistic church, about many things, including church attendance. I'm not legalistic about church attendance. But let me say this. I think it's absolutely essential that we have a morning service, an evening service, and a Wednesday night service. I don't view that as just tradition. I think it's immensely valuable. There are so many inputs that come from society. To think that we're going to set aside you know, an hour in the morning, an hour at night, and an hour on Wednesday night in order to try to communicate and to, to, to combat all of the world's influences, uh, we could easily do a whole lot more uh, and benefit from it. Uh, the challenges today in so many things encroaching upon a family, so many things to tear us apart because we live in a pluralistic society, because there are so many things going on around us, because there are so many people who are not worshiping on a Sunday night, because there are so many activities that are entered into, because there are so many allurements that it's getting harder and harder and harder for families to make choices between what they're going to do on Sundays, what they're going to do on Sunday nights, what they're going to do on Wednesday nights. And I, for one, really believe, not just because I'm a pastor, I'm a pastor because of what I believe. I'm not, I don't believe because I'm a pastor. Uh, many people get that backwards. It's because of what I believe that I chose to be a pastor. I believe that these, these services are immensely important. I'm thankful for all the children that are sitting here. I think it's valuable. I think it's incredibly valuable. And, and we just have to be aware of all the influences that come against the family. And we have to make choices. Hard choices. Difficult choices. And uh, Lord bless you as you, you struggle and wrestle with these things. It's not easy. I'm just saying it's getting harder and harder and harder because of all the outside influences. That's the, the nature of a pluralistic society. Four. 
The reason that Jehovah was to be worshipped was because he is the true and living God. Joshua 24, 17. For the Lord our God, he it is that brought us up and our fathers out of the land of Egypt. You see, there's a historicity to our God. Our God is real. And the actions that are attributed to Jehovah are the things that Jehovah did. For example, it is the Jehovah God who created the heavens and the earth. Allah didn't do that. Confucius didn't do that. Buddha didn't do that. No other being that's called God did that. God alone, the God of the Bible, created the heavens and the earth. And we shouldn't ascribe the works of God to someone else. And that's exactly what Aaron did when he molded the golden calves. He said, behold, your gods that brought you up out of the land of Canaan. Well, that wasn't the God that brought them up out of the land of Canaan. And the gods and the religions around us are not the God who created the heavens and the earth. Five. In a pluralistic society, it is absolutely essential that we are able to give a reasonable defense of our faith, not only to others, but also to our children. Uh, We've got to be able to answer their questions. We've got to be able to tell them about truth. Number three. The family unit was the primary means of defense against the religious and philosophical pluralism. The family unit is an important means of guarding against a religious and philosophical pluralism. The children of Israel were not to marry into other religious groups, lest their children would not serve God. Furthermore, you shall not intermarry with them. You shall not give your daughters to their sons, nor shall you take their daughters for your sons, for they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. Lest we think that that is outrageous, lest we think that that is not true, we have the supreme example in Solomon. You think if anybody would be safe, you know, if it's a matter of intellect, if it's a matter of knowledge, who is wiser than Solomon? Who has a greater understanding of truth than Solomon? But notice the effect that intermarriage had upon Solomon. Uh, did I not put verse 1 there? Let me look on the other page. No, I didn't. Okay. So pick up on verse uh, 2. From the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the sons of Israel, You shall not associate with them, neither shall you associate with you, for they will surely turn your heart away from other gods. Solomon held fast to these in love. So it's quoting Deuteronomy and saying, God warned and said, don't marry these people. And these are the very people that Solomon married. And he held fast to them in love. Verse 3, and he had 700 wives, princes, and 300 concubines, and his wives turned his heart away. Most of the high places that plagued Israel were built in Solomon's era as a way of appeasing his wives. The greatest initiator of false religion in Israel's history was Solomon. And it was because of his wives. And it plagued not only his family, but it plagued the whole nation of Israel because he uh, disregarded that prohibition. Two, likewise, 
The New Testament teaches us that believers are not to marry unbelievers. Be not unequally yoked together. And the issue there is, it's believing the unbelieving. Even in the Old Testament, it's about nations. It's about faith. Okay? So, the issue is not, does a Caucasian marry a black? Or does a Caucasian marry an Arabian individual? Or an Indian? Or any other nationality? The issue is, are they marrying a Christian? And so it's not an issue of, is it a Caucasian marrying a Caucasian? The issue is, are they marrying a devoted Christian, a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ? If we're going to preserve our grandchildren, it's very important who our children marry. There is no greater impact on the ensuing generations than the faith of the parents. It becomes absolutely essential that our children marry dedicated believers. The imagery I have here of being unequally yoked together is a striking one. Uh, it's, it's an imagery of, of a yoke, if you can think of it. It was that uh, apparatus that was put on the shoulders of, of a team of oxen so that they could pull together. And if they weren't matched... They couldn't pull together. And the idea here is if you are marrying a non-believer, you can't together raise your family the way that they should be raised because you're going to have competing values. You're going to have competing interests. You're going to have competing philosophies. You're not going to be on the same page. And you need to be on the same page about Jesus Christ. Thirdly, the family unit was and is to be preserved because divorce is one of the leading factors in children not continuing on with the faith of the parents. Malachi 2.15 But not one has done so who is a remnant of the Spirit. And what did that one do while he was seeking a godly offspring? Take heed then to your spirit that no one deal treacherously against the wife of your youth. For I hate divorce, says the Lord, the God of Israel, and him who covers his garment with wrong, says the Lord of hosts. So take heed to your spirit that you do not deal treacherously. The reason that he hates divorce in verse 15 is because he desires a godly seed. Parents need to model the faith. They need to model forgiveness. They need to model dedication. They need to model commitment. They need to model the reality of their belief. And divorce flies in the nature of what they are we are trying to teach our children about forgiveness, about commitment, about honoring our vows before God. And more and more, the influence of our pluralistic society devalues marital commitment, devalues the importance of staying together for life. There used to be a thought that you stayed together for the sake of the children. That is being laughed at in our society and our culture. In fact, many people will say that you're better off for the children's sake because they shouldn't, hear the, 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 they shouldn't hear the arguing. They shouldn't have to experience the tension in the home. Well, I'm not for arguing and I'm not for tension in the home. But I am for staying together for the sake of the children, but not simply so that they have food in their mouths and clothes on their back or peace as they fall asleep, but so that they worship and serve the living and true God. So that 
they don't look at their parents as hypocrites. So they are not discouraged in their faith. These things become incredibly real and necessary in our situation. B. The parents and the family must be consistent if religious pluralism is to be avoided. The word of God is to be cherished by the parents. And these words which I command you today shall be on your heart. We need to demonstrate a sincere love of the word of God. We do this by reading the scripture. We do this by memorizing the scripture. We do this by our religious beliefs and practices. Our religious beliefs and practices must be incorporated into all aspects of life. And you shall teach them diligently to your sons and shall talk with them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lay down and when you rise up. Let me give you another practical illustration. Um, it is not by accident that we don't have a children's church. It isn't because we never thought of it. It isn't because we don't have the people to man it. It's a conscious choice. Because we see the value and benefit of children worshiping with their parents. There's a great value. Now, there needs to be education appropriate for children. We have that. It's called Sunday school. We have that. It takes place on our Wednesday evening. We need to have age-appropriate education. We also need corporate worship experiences. Let me give you two examples from my own background. Uh, my home church had a bus ministry. And we used to bus children in, which meant that their parents didn't come. We just bus kids in from the area to seek to evangelize them. And, and uh, the children came uh, from the church as well. And, and it just so happened that, that uh, I conducted that children's church for five years. And so I'm familiar with Children's Church, and I've been there, and I know their strengths, and I know their weaknesses. But there's nothing like worshiping together. I went to the Reading Church, and they too had a a Children's Church. Not speaking against them, but it was interesting when I would go out and visit young couples. And uh, I tried to get them to bring their... I I tried to get them to come to Sunday night, because they weren't coming to Sunday night. And can you guess why they said they didn't come to Sunday night? Right, there's nothing for the children. Uh, we can come, but, but there's nothing for the children. And I try to say, well, we have a service. And, and, and oh, but, but, you know, they, that's over their head. They can't get out. And, and it was foreign to them that they would bring their children Sunday night because they were used to having them segregated on a Sunday morning. There is value in children sitting in next to their parents and just seeing your commitment. It's good for them to be singing the same songs, hearing the same message. And you have the opportunity to take and distill that. I know that I say a lot of things that are over their heads. But you can talk about these things. You can try to help them understand. You can seek to encourage them and, and, and aid them in their, in their faith. Um, 
I said that, that we need to make decisions for our, our children. I know we made decisions for our children that they were going to worship the living and true God. Uh, we made decisions about whether we were going to be Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday nights. We made a lot of decisions. But you can't make guarantees, obviously, uh, that it is the Spirit of God must work and also that there needs to be uh, awareness on our own part. I remember very, very well, Suki was about 10 years old. And we were watching together as a family uh, a movie that was called Sheffy. I don't know. Anybody familiar with that? It's a movie that was made by uh, uh, Bob Jones uh, University. And it's the story of an itinerant evangelist in the 1800s and uh, how he traveled through the, the mountains in uh, the south preaching the gospel. And his parents were really totally against what he was doing. But he did it anyway. And Suki was 10 years old and she was watching that. And I remember it like it was this day, because we got done, and she was just weeping. And I said, what's the matter, Suki? And she said, you know, Dad, sometimes I don't know if I believe because I believe, or I believe because you believe. There had to come that time in which that faith becomes their own. But even she recognized that a lot of what she believed was because it's what we believed. And she had a respect for that. Then she had to agonize, was this her own? I think every child has to come to that conclusion. That's one of the reasons why I discourage young children from being baptized. Because I think that there, there comes that struggle in every child's heart and mind that wrestles with, is this really my faith? Or is this my parents' faith? But I tell you, you give them an incredible foundation to start with by imparting to them your faith, your conviction, your settled commitment to Jesus Christ. And then they're going to have to wrestle with that at some point. By the grace of God, by the influence, by the answer to prayer, all these things, I believe that that God is at work because that's what God wants to do. That's what he tells us. He wants this word of God to be in in our families to the first and second and third generations. So what's going to preserve our families? It's the family itself. It's the family itself. And what is it about the family? The conscious choice of the parents that says our family is going to serve God. And we're going to do what we know what's going to be right. And we're going to resist all the temptation that's going to be out there to do differently. We're going to resist the temptation that says don't indoctrinate your children. We're going to resist the temptation that says there's, some, there's a better place for you to be on Sunday morning or Sunday nights. Or that somehow your children are actually going to be put off by hearing these things, and you're better off by not exposing them. Uh, That's kind of mind-boggling to me, but but those ideas are out there. 
we need to resist because we live in a very pluralistic society. I commend you. I commend you that you are here tonight. I commend you that you're bringing your children. And I just tell you, it's a far greater value, I think, than, than many times we even realize ourselves. It's a benefit for them to be in the house of God with people that love them and that nourish them and encourage them and, and want to help them. It's so important that, that you're not just busting your kids here on a Sunday morning, but you're going with them. And they're sitting next to you. And they're seeing that your faith is important. They need to see you pray. They need to have you pray with them about difficulties, hurts, joys. They need to see you reading the Bible on your own. They need to see you memorizing the scripture. They need to see your commitment that they would share in it. They'd experience it. Let's pray. Our Father.